The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I'm Jan Barris. For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet, I'm the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you, all of you many people here. We had a, a registration for this event of 106 people which is far and away the largest response we've had to any of these programs that we've done along with Jones Day. And so we're, we're very delighted and, and welcome all of you here. I think the strong response is certainly testimony to the very great interest that this burgeoning relationship between China and Africa um, has nowadays. I think that that relationship has probably only come onto the radar screen of many of us very recently, but our speaker tonight, Deborah Brodingham, uh, she's no Johnny-come-lately to this field. Uh, you all have her resume in front of you, so I'm not going to go over it. But if you look at it, you'll see that she certainly has had an enormous amount of experience in working on Africa and China on foreign aid, on economic assistance during her long and very interesting career. So I, I do urge you to look at her resume. And I urge you all to get a hold of this book and to read it. Um, the Dragon's Gift, The Real Story of Africa uh, and China. I think that this book shows, first of all, it dispels a lot of myths and a lot of misperceptions. I'm not going to go into those tonight uh, because I think, Deborah, that's probably much of what she is going to talk about, but it's part of what I found very fascinating about the book. Um, but I, what I do want to say about it is, um, first of all, it, it struck me as I was reading it that it must have taken just an enormous amount of research and effort. And it's not like writing a book on Africa and France. I mean, uh, China and France, or China even in the United States, or some domestic issue in China. Africa is a big continent. There's a lot of different countries that you have to be aware of and, and knowledgeable about because each of them has its own characteristics, its own culture, and its own relationship with China. So on the one hand, I was really impressed with all of the work that must have gone into this over the years. And then I was also really impressed with how personalized Deborah has made this book. I mean, it could be, after all, let's face it, it could be a very dry statistical read, um, a book on economic aid, on foreign aid, in and of itself is going to mean talking about a lot of economic regula regulations, a lot of statistics, etc. But Deborah really puts herself into it, her relationships with people, both in China and in the many African countries, and she brings into it her experience that she's had in working with various groups that look at foreign aid and economic assistance over the years. So I would urge all of you to read it. I'm going to turn it over to Deborah so that we don't waste any time. She'll speak for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then we'll open it up to Q&A and look forward to hearing from all of you as well. Jan, thank you for that very nice introduction, and thank you to Joan Stay for hosting us. And thank you to all of you for coming, uh, despite the warnings of the big storm. I'm assured by my husband that it hadn't yet hit Washington when, uh, about an hour ago, so you might have you'll plenty of time to get home. So I'm going to start with a story, and this is a story that I bet a lot of people in the room already know. We'll see. And it begins once upon a time. So once upon a time, a large, very poor, but resource-rich country, just emerging from a period of violent conflict, decided to focus on development. We need to modernize our infrastructure, they said. We need to build railways. We need to import new technologies. And we need to figure out how to get more coal out of our mind. And soon they had a visit from a large, wealthy Asian country that had already become a major importer of their oil. And this Asian country offered them a bargain. We will give you a line of credit worth $10 billion, and you can import our technologies. Our companies can build your infrastructure and uh, develop your mines. You can repay us with your oil. And many in the poor country were intensely suspicious of this wealthy Asian power, but they agreed to the bargain, and the work began. So which two countries am I talking about? Well, 
clearly one of the countries was China. China was a large, poor country with oil. And the other country was Japan. As, uh, as I, I hope quite a few people in this room know, but in many of my audiences, that's not the case. China was just emerging from the Cultural Revolution. At the time was 30 years ago, longer. And when Deng Xiaoping first proposed this in China, it was intensely controversial. But he prevailed, and China went on to prosper, and this relationship helped, particularly at the beginning. And there are several points here that relate to China's engagement in Africa. And the first is that this was not altruism on Japan's part. It wasn't foreign aid. This first $10 billion line of credit was at commercial rate. Foreign aid did come later, but that was not there at the beginning. Uh, but most importantly, and second, is that China saw this relationship, this bargain, our natural resources for your technology and your experience, as something that would be good for their development. Japan was pleased to get access to China's oil and coal and sell them advanced technology and engineering services. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I hope at least some of you in the room were surprised by this. Anybody? No? It's one of many surprises that people will find in this book, because China's offering the same bargain to many African countries today. Leverage what you have and what we want. Oil in Congo Brazzaville, Sesame in Ethiopia, cocoa in Ghana, to build the telecoms, the power, the railway stations, the mines that you believe to be necessary for your country's modernization. And I'm hearing of one major deal in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. An editor at the Financial Times wrote, Beijing has thrown down its most direct challenge yet to the West's architecture for aiding African development. And I think he was right. The challenge is not just about the things we're reading in the newspaper, about debt sustainability, about poor environmental standards, low labor standards, uh, governance issues, and uh, social standards, important and real as these issues may be. It is more fundamentally about how the aid and development finance architecture actually work and how it might change. This book is about Chinese aid and state-sponsored economic engagement in Africa. And that's the starting point. And at the beginning, I had a more academic title. It was something like Chinese strategic engagement in Africa, colon something or something. Um, but while I was, I learned a lot of things about publishing. This isn't my first book at all, but it's the first one I've written that seems to be <laughs> generating a lot of interest. And so my publisher was very aware of that. And when I was off uh, doing field work in rural Sierra Leone or Zambia or Tanzania somewhere, and not even on email, um, my editor put the proposal forward to her board, and she changed the title unilaterally. And she called it Rogue Donor, with a question mark, the real story of China and Africa. And so I found this out in an internet cafe somewhere. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, my God. But at this point, it had already gone out in a trade catalog, and it was, like, circulating around the Internet. And um, so I finally got the title changed, um, but we had to compromise on the subtitle. But um, my editor, when the book was released in the U.K. in November last year, she was very annoyed with me because a week earlier, Sarah Palin had released her memoir, <laughs> Going Rogue, and my editor said, see, you know, we could have had some tie-in promotions, Rogue Donor, Going Rogue, and so on. Alas. But seriously, I wrote this book out of uh, both alarm and scholarly curiosity. The alarm was because both the West and China itself present distorted images of this relationship. In the Chinese media, the move into Africa is presented along wholly positive lines. We are good friends who help each other. China is a sincere partner. Uh, the Tanzan Railway is regularly trotted out as a symbol of China's selfless intentions toward the continent. But in reality, Chinese companies are down in the dirt doing deals with uh, dictators, and many are apparently giving kickbacks with gusto, and they're doing all the same things that Western companies have been doing for quite a long time. And on the other hand, the Western media is almost wholly negative. We read that the Chinese are the new colonialists, uh, that their aid is toxic, 
that they're making poverty worse, that China gives billions in aid to prop up pariah regimes like Sudan or Zimbabwe, that China's leading the charge to grab huge swaths of land across Africa, or that they bring in all their own labor and don't hire Africans. And much of this, in fact, is not true. So um, when I did this research, I drew on, uh, as Jan said, a long history of this. My first book was on Chinese aid. Um, I and African development, and that I started doing research on really in 1983. So in some ways you could say this book is almost 30 years uh, in the works, although the most recent research was over the past three years. And when I was writing this book, I often felt like uh, Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese film director. And why do I feel like that? It's because of his film uh, Rashomon. You know that film? There's an event that happens in the woods, and uh, you see it once and you think you know what it's all about. And then you see it again, and you realize that the first vision that you had may not have actually depicted the reality. And so that's what I do in this book. I, I present the conventional wisdom, and I show you another perspective, and maybe even yet another perspective on it. And through that, I think we get down to uh, a deeper understanding of what China's actually doing. So I do construct this, deconstruct this conventional wisdom. I only have time for a few of the myths and realities that I talk about in the book, and there are many, maybe 20, <laughs> that I go over. So let me just address four. And the first uh, is about how much aid China gets. Now, we hear that Chinese aid is huge, and uh, this is probably the biggest, uh, most repeated error on this topic. For example, on a, a study that the World Bank did in 2008, I believe, on uh, infrastructure, it's called Building Bridges. It was Chinese infrastructure projects in Africa. It's a pretty good study. Uh, but at one point they say there that uh, China's given Africa $44 billion in aid over the years until the end of 2006. And when I saw this, um, I thought, this is way off. This is much higher than it should be. And so I looked at their sources. And they had, they were, um, uh, they had put it, they had gotten that figure out of a Dow Jones article that was reporting on a visit that Chinese Premier uh, Wen Jiabao had done in North Africa. And so I went to the Chinese sources on this, and I didn't even have to go to, to the actual, to the Zhongguan, the, the Chinese. I went to the English uh, translations of, of Xinhua for that. And I found out that um, what uh, Wen Jiabao had said was 44 billion renminbi, and that's about $5.6 billion. And so this is uh, something the World Bank didn't check, and they didn't think, and they just accepted as, you know, something that would then come out in their publications. And there are many other examples of this. In fact, I have one chapter just uh, giving my estimates of Chinese aid, which is a lot lower. It's about, by my estimates, about $1.9 billion a year on average over the past three years. Um, and this is a lot lower than most people think. But if you want to know my rationale and my sources for that, you'll have to read that chapter. Um, the Chinese do not make this kind of research easy. Uh, foreign aid is not published. Um, the, even the, the um, investment figures are not broken down by sectors going to Africa. Uh, the export credits for Africa, we don't know how much they are out of the total export credits. So there's a lot that is just not reported. We don't know the breakdown between concessional and non-concessional loans. But there's a lot more information if you are able to dig and if you're able to do interviews. You can actually put together a much more complete picture than we have, and that's what I've done in this project. So aid is not big. On the other hand, Chinese economic engagement in general is huge. Uh, Chinese trade has gone from $10 billion a year in 2000 to $106 billion a year in 2008. This is an enormous uh, increase, and if you look at the graphs of this, it goes up like that, almost like climbing a ladder. They're second now only to the United States for the African continent. And Chinese investment is probably also up by the same factor of 10, although the figures that we have are not accurate. They don't reflect a lot of the investments that have actually happened. Uh, but yet it's quite large. Um, aid is small. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that the Chinese are doing as well. Now, let me go into the second large myth, which is that... Um, Chinese aid and engagement in Africa are all about oil or natural resources. Now, countering this myth is going to be one of the more controversial of my arguments. But I say this first because the evidence on aid, and on particularly the grants and zero interest loans that come out of the Ministry of Commerce, is that it is primarily political. Uh, aid is widely spread across the continent. In fact, it's far more evenly spread than aid from the Western donors, who tend to have their donor favorites. 
the Francophone countries get aid from France, the Anglophone countries get aid from, from England. Um, and then other countries are left as donor orphans. So every country in Africa, including Mauritius, South Africa, Botswana, countries that are wealthier on a per capita basis than China, has received aid from China, except Swaziland. The only requirement really is that you have to have diplomatic relations with Beijing and not with Taipei in order to get aid of some degree or magnitude. Now, what about the large loans that we see in the media? And we see this quite a bit. We see um, $4.5 billion in Chinese aid, for, or, you know, Chinese loans for Angola and rising. Uh, figures of $9 billion for uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, though that's been cut back recently, and other very large figures in the media. Well, um, these loans, the $4.5 billion for Angola, for example, from the China Exim Bank, were even described in a recent report by Chatham House in London, which is, it was a, again, a very good report, but they described these loans as deeply confessional, which surely makes them sound like aid. But in fact, the researchers at Chatham House were wrong to say that they were confessional. These loans were given um, on a LIBOR basis. And I, since I'm in New York here and we're here at Jones Day, you probably all know what LIBOR is. But just in case there are some people who don't, let me explain. LIBOR is the London Interbank Offered Rate. And this is a bank that, this is a rate that banks give each other. And uh, it's the loans that were given to Angola and the other Chinese loans from the Exim Bank, uh, by, for the most part, are given at LIBOR Plus. And so they're at LIBOR plus 1.5% or LIBOR plus 1% or something along those lines. And this is very similar to loans that are given to Angola by Western banks. For example, Standard Charter gives its loans to Angola at LIBOR plus 2.5%. So that one uh, percentage point of difference doesn't create a, make this into foreign aid. And indeed, um, these loans are not described by the Chinese as aid. They're just described by others that way. So, um, oil and minerals are a huge part of Chinese interest in Africa. And I don't mean to um, uh, say that they aren't. I mean, they clearly are a huge part. But there are a lot of other things going on there. For example, year-to-year -year infrastructure contracts that are signed by Chinese companies in Africa are actually far larger than any of the estimates that we have on investment. Um, in 2008, for example, Chinese companies in Africa signed new infrastructure contracts worth $40 billion. And they reported revenues of $20 billion just for that year. And Chinese finance will pay for only a fraction of these. Uh, the others are paid by African governments that have money. For example, hundreds of contracts in Nigeria. Private companies in Africa that hire Chinese companies to do construction for them. The World Bank and the African Development Bank. Uh, right now, Chinese companies are winning more than half of all of the infrastructure contracts tendered by the African Development Bank, and they're almost getting to that point for the World Bank. And by donors who have healthfully untied their aid, which has been a, a growing trend amongst uh, donors from the West and, and even from Japan. And their tenders are now being won by Chinese companies as well. Now, the Chinese have not untied their aid. It's still tied, uh, by and large, to goods and services from China. And then um, another example is that kind of single largest investment in Africa to date, the single largest one investment has been, does anyone know? Exactly. 20% of Standard Bank in South Africa. That was $5 billion, more or less. And that's the single largest investment that's been completed, signed, sealed, delivered. And it's even reflected in the data that we see. So I think for all of these reasons, um, and there are more in the book, uh, my argument that is a lot more than oil, um, I think it's justified. As a Nigerian official said to me when I interviewed him actually in Beijing, he said, the West comes here and it's oil, oil, oil. But the Chinese come here and they're interested in everything. And so what are they interested in outside of oil? Let's look at that because um, it sheds light on the impact or the likely impact or the potential impact of Chinese engagement in Africa. And so I want to speak in particular about um, manufacturing and governance, all right? So manufacturing, the conventional wisdom on Chinese impact on manufacturing in Africa is dismal. We have the idea that Chinese um, exports to the continent, and they are huge. For example, the trade figures that I mentioned of about $106 billion, roughly half of that is oil and resources and other goods coming out from Africa and going to China. 
But the other half of that is goods from China coming to Africa. And this is very different, for example, from the United States, where we have, I think the trade figures are around $120 billion in 2008 for the continent. Um, and that was almost $100 billion coming from Africa to the United States, again, mainly resources, and then only 20-some billion going from the United States to Africa in terms of our exports going there. And so the market for China is much, much bigger than it is for us going there. And so um, that shows you that Chinese exporters are very interested in this market. And Africa is a, it's not only the low end, uh, it's the medium and the high end. Uh, all of these are going, goods are going to Africa. A lot is the low end, to be sure. Uh, but some of China's flagship companies like uh, ZTE and Huawei and Hi-Air have uh, got huge projects in Africa. And they're setting up the telecommunications uh, networks that are bringing Africa into the 21st century um, across the continent. Now, manufacturing. This, uh, all of this trade that's been going into Africa has been very tough on African manufacturers who have had their markets opened up quite healthily by the World Bank and the IMF in the 1990s through structural adjustment programs. And so um, we have seen this particularly in the textile industry. The textile industry in, across most of Africa is an import substitution industrialization set of industries. And so it was substituting for imports and it is antiquated, it has not been modernized, and it is being wiped out by Chinese imports. Many of these are smuggled in by into countries like Nigeria that try to ban it. So they have a ban on, on textile imports, but it comes in through the uh, countries around. So, for example, you look at Chinese textile exports to Benin, which is next door to Nigeria, and they're huge. And they're going to cross the border uh, into Nigeria and helping to wipe out those companies. But there's another story here. And that story is that when you actually look at the data on what manufacturing rates of growth have been doing in a number of African countries that have intensive engagement from China, they've been going up for the past five years. And so you see, uh, on average, um, for a sample of, um, of 15 countries uh, in Africa, it went from an average around 4% to an average around 6% over the past five years. So it's not looking as though manufacturing has been wiped out. And some of this is coming from Chinese investment in manufacturing. And this is something we hear very little about. Uh, the sector, the single largest, uh, the fastest growing sector of Chinese exports to Africa is equipment and machinery. Now most of this is uh, going into construction. So it's the equipment that's the caterpillars and the other things. Uh, some of them actually have American uh, labels on them, like John Deere tractors are, are coming from China and going into Africa. Um, but some of it is uh, equipment going into factories because Chinese are, are getting pushed by their government and they're getting attracted into African markets. And they are doing this in part assisted by a number of innovative programs that the Chinese government has put in place. These are programs like the $5 billion uh, China-Africa Development Fund. Uh, put, it's an equity fund put together by the China Development Bank. And this is uh, about, added about $1 billion right now with about $2 billion worth of investments and they have a minority share in all of them. So a lot of those investments, or some of them in any case, are going into manufacturing. We also have these uh, seven overseas special economic zones. Six are underway and one is still in abeyance in Algeria. So these are being developed uh, along the lines of some of the overseas or the special economic zones in China. Shenzhen, for example. This is a model uh, that's being exported now by the government. And, but they're being done on an interesting model. And this model shows, I think, what the Chinese have learned from their own examination of failures in their own past aid projects. And they have been in Africa for 50 years. A lot of their aid did not work well. It was not sustainable. And so they did a lot of studies of this. They tried to figure out how could they engage in ways that would be more sustainable. And this, again, is not about altruism. It's about mutual benefit. It's about, um, which is a core foundational principle in Chinese foreign policy. And so these overseas special economic zones are something that African governments want because they want to foster manufacturing. They want to foster employment. And the ones that I've seen are employing predominantly uh, African workers. But this will also help in uh, China's efforts to move the lower end of manufacturing offshore and move Chinese companies up the value chain at home. And so these are, are uh, labor intensive and uh, research intensive um, leather industries, uh, sometimes textile industries and mineral processing in industries. And these are being um, promoted to move to other parts of the world. 
the process is quite interesting how this is being done. There are, right now, um, the idea is to have 50 of these worldwide eventually. But right, right now, 19 have been selected. And this is all done through competitive tenders in Beijing in two rounds, in 2006 and 2007. And these competitive tenders were uh, uh, answered by Chinese companies who put together proposals to build these zones in countries that they were familiar with. And so the proposals went through several rounds, and finally they ended up in front of a panel in Beijing. And this panel was university professors and people from, um, from China's own special economic zones, like uh, Tianjin and Shenzhen. They came and they were judges on the proposals. And they selected. Um, the first round selected nine, and the second round selected 11. And Africa ended up with seven of these. And so um, it is something that the Chinese hope will be more sustainable than their ordinary foreign aid. It brings government support to bear subsidies and grants from the government, uh, helping to build the infrastructure for these zones. But then um, things like a $1 billion fund for African small and medium enterprises was just uh, set up in November last year, and that will be to help these enterprises in part to invest in these zones. So there are a lot of different ways this is all being mixed together. The China-Africa Development Fund is taking equity shares in three of these zones. So these, uh, these tools are um, supposed to be synergistic, and we'll see. And then there are private entrepreneurs, like um, Innocent Chakuma, who are also interacting with Chinese um, entrepreneurs and doing joint ventures in manufacturing. I visited uh, Innocent Chakuma in May last year in Nigeria. And his factories are near the Niger Delta, where um, there have been a lot of kidnappings and armed robberies. And so when he took me from his factories, um, or he sent me from his factories in Enugu to his factories in Niwi, uh, where I had been for going on and off since 1991 when I first went there for the World Bank, he gave me an escort of two policemen with AK-47s. And so we, we went down the road, uh, and there were 12 roadblocks along the way in which they were checking for uh, various uh, nefarious characters who might be moving in and out of that area. And one AK-47 went out that window, and the other went out that window, and they, they wouldn't even chat with me because they were just scanning the road to make sure that nothing was going to be happening. So this was an interesting research experience that I had. And so he's doing joint ventures with Chinese companies with whom he's been trading. And uh, they've been uh, partners in trading for 10 years. And now they're moving into production together. And it takes a long time to build up this trust on both sides. So they will uh, form joint ventures. And there were other entrepreneurs that I spoke to as well who had the same kind of experience. Again, many, many years of trading, becoming um, trusting of each other through doing business for a long time together. And so this, this is happening in several other places as well. One of the things he's producing is plastic. And I had read in, um, there's this great uh, journalistic story in, I think it's in Saks Company uh, by, um, I can't remember his name, but he went around Africa and did all of these uh, really, exactly, Richard Behar. He did these kind of sensational stories about the Chinese here and there and everywhere. And uh, in one of these stories, he says China is wiping out the plastics industry in Nigeria. And so when I was visiting this factory um, that the innocent Chakuma is running, uh, and he has a 1,000 Nigerian workers, and he has, you know, building after building producing plastics, and he's, he's one of the big major uh, plastics manufacturers in Nigeria. And I said to him, well, you know, I have read that China's wiping out the plastics industry in Nigeria, so how are you able to compete? And so he said to me, well, he says, not that hard. He said, I actually have a tire factory. It's a joint venture in China. So I know how things work there, and I pay my workers the same. I pay the same salary there and here. Uh, he said, I, I bring the machinery from China. So we're all using the same machinery. He said, the raw materials come from Port Harcourt, which is here in Nigeria. And he said, I have a distribution network all over Nigeria and the neighboring states. And he said, it's not that hard. <laughs> And I'm doing very well, he said. So um, why wouldn't I be able to outcompete the Chinese? This is my home territory. So that kind of example is, I think, got the potential to multiply in a lot of other parts of Africa. And we can see it happening. Um, and there are other examples in my book. But because my time is short here, let me move on to the next topic, which is government. Now, governance is an area that I've been working in also for a long time. I did a, a short book on aid dependence and governance uh, several years ago. And uh, so I was very interested to know how was China's engagement going to affect governance in Africa. 
And many argue that with China rising, uh, progress in human rights and democracy and good governance across the continent will be reversed. But I predict that the impact of Chinese engagement is likely to be more marginal than most people believe. And why do I say this? Well, first, I say this because there's no evidence that China is more comfortable with authoritarian regimes or seeks them out in particular. Their largest trading partner has traditionally been South Africa. And this was superseded um, last year or the year before by Angola because the price of oil went up so high and Chinese uh, oil from Angola increased. Uh, but up until then, it had been South Africa. Mauritius, Botswana, Ghana uh, are some of Africa's best governed countries, and they're countries in which China is very deeply engaged. Uh, so across the continent, uh, and China's also engaged, as we know, in Sudan and Zimbabwe and Equatorial Guinea and other countries that are really badly governed. But across the continent, Chinese engagement will probably not foster significant change. And what it means is that significant change is going to continue to be up to Africans, which is really where it has been um, up until this point. And the second point is that China is not static on this. After blowback um, on Sudan and the Darfur tragedy and Zimbabwe, they changed. And in Sudan, the Chinese role has changed considerably over the years. And in part, this is due to um, the advocacy campaign, which was quite effective around the Olympics and really shook up the leadership in Beijing. And it made them consider, what actually do we mean when we talk about non-interference? And the concept of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries is one that has undergone change um, and reinterpretation over the years in Beijing. It's come to be reinterpreted, and it's been reinterpreted again around the, the Darfur issue. And it's interesting that both um, Andrew Nazios, who was President Bush's special envoy on the Darfur issue, and Scott Gratian, who is uh, President Obama's special envoy, have both said that they appreciate China's role uh, as being now part of the solution and not part of the problem, or not simply part of the problem. And so uh, what, what China is doing is really pushing uh, Khartoum to come to the negotiating table, because until there's a peace to hold, the, the peacekeepers don't have a, a peace to keep, and that's a, an important part of the solution for Darfur. And I was fascinated that when I was in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in November last year, there was a uh, there was a group of Africans who I got talking to about this. They found out I had written a book on this topic, which was just about to come out. And so they said to me at one point, why didn't China support us on the Bashir issue, being about Bashir being sent to the International Criminal Court and warrant issued for his arrest? They said, why didn't China support the Africans on this? And I was trying to just figure out the nuances of what had happened there. And I said, well, can you explain this a little bit more? And they said, well, the African Union position and the position of African governments, and these were government officials, is that they did not want this to happen, for many obvious reasons. And they thought China would support them. Uh, but China abstained. Um, they, did, they allowed this. The Security Council allowed this to go forward, and uh, the Chinese could have vetoed that. And so this was something that was looked at in Africa as, like, China's not supporting us on this uh, issue on cartoon. And in Zimbabwe, and I should probably tell you that for my research on this, I went to um, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Mozambique, um, Mauritius, and more recently, although it's not in the book, um, Egypt. I also had a research assistant who went to Angola, um, Egypt, Ethiopia, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I draw on earlier research of mine in the Gambia and Liberia. So it's a number of different countries that do get um, mentioned here. And when I was in Zimbabwe, I found um, the government there was not very helpful for my research, I can tell you. But uh, I did get quite a lot of information. And I found that the Chinese are really tired of Mugabe. And they were deeply frustrated at the failure of their economic engagement there. And according to all independent sources, they had actually put very little money into the country. The economic office in Zimbabwe spent a lot of time running to the Ministry of Finance, trying to get paid on many of the contracts that the Chinese companies had undertaken years earlier and had, uh, the government had not paid them. One Chinese company had tried for six years to finalize a contract at the Huangi Colliery to uh, build a power plant, a coal-powered um, power plant. And last, year, uh, last week, uh, Zimbabwe's Minister of Finance, Kendai Diti, was in Washington, and he's one of the key figures in the opposition in, in the inclusionary government. So I asked him about Chinese support for Mugabe, because I haven't been able to interview him in Harare. 
And he said, and I quote him, before and after the inclusive government, Chinese economic engagement was very minimal. And so I asked him about press reports of these huge new Chinese deals with Zimbabwe, and he said they're all fiction. And so um, it seems to me that Mugabe is a bit like the Wizard of Oz, you know? He's there behind this, the, uh, this megaphone saying, I have looked east, and I have all the support from China. And he projects this illusion to the world and to his people that he has a lot of support from Beijing. And actually, if you were to pull away this curtain, you would see that he's kind of standing there and he doesn't have this kind of support. And so I talk about that in the book as well. Now, Chinese companies that are operating in resource-rich, authoritarian countries like Chad or Congo-Brazzaville or Equatorial Guinea are doing all the same kinds of things that Western companies have been doing there for a long time. The kinds of things that have uh, called us to have things like the Extractive Industries uh, Transparency Initiative. They're making shady deals. They're getting kickbacks. They're disrespecting the environment. Um, they're resisting the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, just like our companies are. And their labor standards are usually far worse than ours, uh, even if they actually employ far more locals than most people believe. And I'll give you an example, I think, uh, a sad example that illustrates this. And this comes from Zambia, and some of you may know this story. In 2005, there was an explosion um, in an explosive factory on a Chinese mine in Shambishi, in Zambia. This has gotten a lot of um, attention in the press because everybody in that factory was killed, more than 50 people. And it was due to lax safety standards, poor training, um, and a, a host of problems and um, lack of enforcement by the part of the Zambian government and, and lack of implementation by the Chinese owners. And it was a great tragedy, and it engendered a, a huge political backlash against the Chinese in Zambia. But note that all of the people that were killed in that factory, every single one was a Zambian. And this was a, it was a tragedy, and, but it is also an example of the reality that Chinese are employing Africans in not very good conditions, but they are uh, providing jobs. So, let me move on to my third point on governance, and that has to do with corruption. Now, we've heard a lot about how China is making corruption worse in Africa, but I'm not sure that's entirely the case, um, and I'll tell you why. My main piece of evidence here is that the large Chinese loans that are going in, that many people believe are cash, the way the IMF will give cash, or the policy loans from the World Bank, which will basically go in as, as money, or standard chartered banks and the consortiums that are giving money or lending money to African governments, they do also transfer funds. Uh, but the Chinese don't do that. They keep the money in China. And these are lines of credit that are then used to hire Chinese companies or to purchase Chinese goods and services. And the money then goes to pay the Chinese company in China rather than coming into the coffers of African governments. And so I argue in the book that this resource-backed infrastructure loan, for example, in, in Angola, the first loan went in at $2 billion, and that um, uh, paid for infrastructure. It paid for irrigation systems. It paid for water systems. It paid for electricity. It paid for the repair of bridges and roads. It just this host of infrastructure pro uh, projects. And none of the money came into... Uh, Luanda. So it's an agency of restraint, and some of the funds from these resources can actually get used for development, um, just as Japan did with China so long ago. As one African official said to me, with China, you never see that money. So in conclusion, let me say that Chinese aid and state-sponsored engagement in Africa is different from ours, and it's different for four reasons. First, the foreign policy principles. Uh, the non-interference and mutual benefit are core, and we don't have that. Second, their core ideas about development are different, and they derive from their own experience, and our experience is very different. Um, third, China's experience as a recipient of aid and loans from the West and Japan gave them ideas about how this could be used for mutual benefit. And finally, China's becoming an East Asian developmental state, and we know what this looks like. We've seen Taiwan, we've seen Korea, we've seen Japan. We just haven't seen a country operating like this in Africa on this scale. So the last thing I'll say is that it's time to revise the conventional wisdom on what China's doing in Africa. It's time to know a little bit more about the realities behind the myths and which myths are realities. Uh, and this will help us to engage more effectively with China. That's why I wrote this book, and I hope you'll read it. Thank you.
Um, we're going to open it up to questions. I have several, but let, let I'm sure there's lots of questions based on the terrific presentation by Deborah. When you do ask a question, please let us know who you are and where you're from. Go ahead. The person who really is offering the question. Hi, I'm Brian Neal, supporting the Could you enlighten us on this comparative strength of China and the U.S. in terms of investment in Africa? I haven't heard of anything in terms of loan guarantees alone that China is dwarfing down to allow United States companies to have access to. And does that suggest that China can continue to outpace the U.S. in terms of African countries? According to the data, China is not outpacing us in terms of investment. So there's an idea. I'm not sure where they are in terms of if they're number two, but we're higher than they are. But as I said, I don't think the investment data that we have from the Ministry of Commerce in China is all that good. But I don't think they're probably higher than we are in any case. We are still investing quite a bit. And we have a lot of bank – in fact, in Chapter 6 of my book, I look at these figures of loans that we have going in from the United States and from China, everything I've been able to pick up. And we're still quite a bit higher on all of the different measures of finance going in. But China does have access to a lot more instruments for promoting its companies than we do. They've got both SinoSure and the China Ex-Im Bank, and both of those can provide guarantees. And then the Ex-Im Bank is huge in terms of the export credits that it offers, and much, much higher than the United States export credits, which are paltry by comparison. And in terms of the other instruments that we have to guarantee investments, it is much smaller than what the Chinese have. And so even though a lot of – but a lot of our investment goes in without guarantees. So it's not using the U.S. government for either the export credits or the guarantees to go in there. So I think in that sense, they have the potential to, even in the future, be much bigger because Africa is still small for China. It's a small part of their global engagement, even though it's been rising. But it has the potential to get a whole lot bigger. And we, I think, are starting to wake up to this and looking at what can we do with our own guarantees and our export credits, which are paltry, as I said, and how can we enlarge them. I'm sorry, what was the first part of what you said? OPEC is one of the instruments that we have. No, it is. And I haven't actually looked at the figures for OPEC for what they put into Africa recently, so I'm not sure how big they are. But I do know that the export credits that we have are much, much smaller. And I imagine, I don't know, I don't want to say because I haven't actually looked at it. There's another difference, too, which is a little bit related to what you said here between China and the United States and the West more generally, and that is that China really sees Africa as an area of opportunity. And we tend to see Africa as either a problem, it's poor and it needs help, or it's harboring terrorism. And so this is our main framework for looking at Africa. And the companies that did go in with more enthusiasm in the 60s and 70s failed and left, many of them. And so that's true of Europe as well. And so the Chinese are coming in and they've been doing this for quite a long time. They've been looking at Africa as an evolving area of potential and not just a resource, but a host of different things. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
I hope there'll be copies left. <laughs> it's been selling out of my talk. I'll try to do it in my answer, that um, he's talking about that there are many different Chinas, and there are many more Chinas today because the Chinese um, have moved away from the plan, and they're moving toward the market, and so uh, companies are less and less controlled, and they're supposed to go out and seek um, their own business, and they're supposed to operate by market principles. So this means that, and then the private sector is growing as well, and the state-owned ones that are acting like private ones and real private ones. So you have a host of different companies and actors in Africa that are China. And so he's saying I've been what we call in academia reifying China. I've been talking about it as though it's just one actor, and, and I um, absolutely, I do discuss this in the book. Because what, uh, what Beijing is finding is that it has what some have called principal agent problems. It, it can't control all of these different actors. It doesn't have the instruments to do uh, that well. Uh, some it can, and it has some ways to control some of the large state-owned enterprises. Um, but as Chinese companies have their budgets increasingly hardened, they're going to be able to get finance uh, on market terms, and they, those kinds of instruments for controlling them will become harder and harder. Now, that, uh, that aside, though, what we find is that um, instruments and incentives still remain because, as I mentioned at the end of my talk, China is a developmental state, and so all of the different carrots and some sticks that they have. Uh, just as if any of you have read about Taiwan's emergence as a developmental state and some of the work of Robert Wade and others who have written on this, it's, or Japan, um, there just is a huge number of different instruments, uh, taxes and tax exemptions and tariff kinds of things and loan funds, a host of different things that can act to shape behavior. So there still are possibilities there, um, as well as rules and regulations that are increasingly um, being developed at home uh, on things like the environment and corporate social responsibility, still very early stage. That could be easy, just as we've been finding in a lot of areas. I think um, even somebody's answered uh, your question because you have a lot of information on this. Um, this Chinese companies have a lot more support from their government than our companies get, just because of the nature of, of how China works compared with our government, which is much more hands-off. Um, but the companies themselves are extremely competitive, and they are willing to, as, as Chinese say, they'll, they'll uh, They'll eat bitterness. They'll eat bitterness, and they'll they'll just really get down there and and fight for business. And there can be Chinese companies that will be there for several years before they get a contract, and they'll be supported by their their home company until they finally win contracts. And once they win contracts, they tend to win more. I'll give you an example of this competitiveness and this way of thinking. I interviewed the um, head of the Bank of China branch in Lusaka, and he was also the head of the China uh, Business Association there. 
and he was just leaving for uh, a trip back to Beijing. And so at the end of our interview, he actually went out to the airport. And as we were walking out, one of his assistants said to me, and I can't remember his name, it's something like uh, Mr. Liu. He said to me, Mr. Liu um, flies economy class, even though he's, he is qualified to fly business class, but he wants to save the company money. And so I can just imagine how many bankers would do that <laughs> in order to save the bank money. So it's um, it's an idea of, of this, this kind of thing that we're, we're in there, we're going to do it uh, the most efficient way we can, and um, perhaps we'll be flying economy class. And uh, this is very hard to compete against. So I'm, I think where we have to compete is at the higher end, you know, in the, the more skilled level, but it's going to be hard in Africa. We probably have to compete back, back here. That's a great question. Um, and I would say that there's no single answer to that. You know, as with any complex power, it really depends on the circumstances. But I would say that um, from what I've seen in Africa and in many African countries, that economics is the most important and business is the most important factor. But within that, Taiwan, the Taiwan issue is always will trumpet, partly trumpet. It's interesting that um, Chinese companies still do business in countries that recognize Taiwan. So you see uh, the Ministry of Commerce uh, statistics, Chinese companies are going after contracts and, and their uh, trade and investment and so on can happen, if, even if the country recognizes Taiwan. But uh, that level of politics is really important. Um, anything that goes with in, in the internal affairs kind of issue. Um, but economics is, and business is really a driving force. labor that, I didn't actually see any child labor, but um, the child labor that I've read about has been in places like the DRC, where it's really a reflection of a, of a war-torn um, post-conflict situation in which you have a lot of kids out there that are either orphans or they're scrabbling. And uh, these, I, I do talk about this in the book. And I, I don't think there's a, I haven't ever seen an official Chinese position on this, but mainly Chinese, these the child labor would be in a really informal situation which you have private companies. Often, in the example I give in the book, it's an African company that is using child workers and then selling to a Chinese middleman. So it, it's not even directly, uh, he's not employing the, the children himself. But it's, I think this kind of problem is one that's much more complicated than when you have orphans who are trying to uh, put bread on in their mouths. Um, what you do in a situation where there's no institutional framework to take care of children like that, no orphanages, and, and so on. And so this is a, a really difficult um, situation. The Chinese companies in Africa are mostly working in big things like big mines and big construction projects, and they're not, they wouldn't want to hire children in those situations. I'm writing a paper about that right now, and so you might have to uh, wait until I finish that paper but, um, it, about the ones outside of Africa, because I focus on the Africa ones in the book. So you've asked a couple of different things there. Um, 
the if you have seven in Africa and 19 worldwide, so that's about you know a little more than a third are in Africa, which makes sense. Some of them are in Latin America, and uh, many are in Asia. There's one in Russia, and so on. But uh, and I have the list of them. I think it's in the book. The whole list. Now. What has China learned? What they learned in the past is that their aid projects, their infrastructure projects, um, and particularly the productive projects, weren't sustainable because they would do the project, they would hand it over to the government, and then it would collapse. And what they did, and we didn't see this, I thought, because I was doing research on this, is that they would send teams back. Uh, the Tianjin Railway, they would renovate it. Um, a stadium, they would send a team to repair it. Um, a, a huge office building that was built for a government. They would send the, a team back and retile it. Um, an irrigation system. They would send a team back and repair the dam. And they did this through the 80s, through the 90s. And they got really tired of it. And they said, we've got to do something different. And so in part, I think, this zone model is bringing Chinese businesses in. They're supposed to run these zones for profit. They're supposed to bring in um, mostly Chinese businesses, but African businesses are welcome as well. And now these small medium enterprises are, are getting finance so that they can invest in the zones. And so that seems to be that they're listening. They're saying that uh, we want employment, we want investment, we want manufacturing, and this is what African governments want. And the Chinese companies will make sure that it's sustainable. I think that this is what you're talking about is already happening. Uh, this Chinese interest in Africa um, and the rise in uh, exports of raw materials to China has increased um, the price of raw materials, and this has created commodity booms, although they've gone down with the economic recession. But in some instances, this is already starting to move back up. And so um, this is an opportunity for natural resource exporters to get it right now. Um, and there is certainly uh, a huge amount of interest by companies that are not Chinese in natural resources in Africa, including Indian companies and Brazilian companies who are now um, in the mix. Now, what I've seen happening is that um, Chinese interest in infrastructure has actually stimulated um, the donor community to start doing infrastructure again. And so this is something I hear a lot that uh, in Liberia, for example, that the um, Chinese came in, they started doing roads. And the donor community looked around and said, I guess we should be doing growth. And, um, and this has happened in other instances as well. Now, when you talk about poverty, we in the West have a lot of certainties about how Africa should develop and what they should do. And the problem with our, our certainties is that they change regularly. So the recipe for what Africa should do changes regularly. Um, for the Chinese, it's much simpler. Uh, in China, they have a saying, um, to get wealthy, build a road. And uh, so they build roads. And they also have a saying, they say, agriculture is the foundation, industry is the leading edge. And so they focus on those sectors, um, and they focus their aid and also their investment on those sectors. And so for them, reducing poverty is about developing business and providing jobs and uh, getting investment happening. And so that's why the tools that they're using tend to focus on those kinds of things and not on microfinance and not on the kinds of poverty reduction programs that um, we tend to do in the West because that's not how they reduce poverty in, in China. I'm sorry we don't have time and I apologize uh, for other questions. I just want to pose with three things. Um, one is, again, to thank all of you for coming, and especially all of you who went into our programs. There is a huge contingent here from the United Nations, which we understand why, given 
topic that Deborah's talking about, but we do hope you'll join us for other programs if you have an interest, not just in the Africa part of the China relationship, you know, China slash relationship, but we hope we now have your names and we hope you'll join us for other programs. I also want to tout, although it is way out of date, um, you, should, you should definitely get Deborah's book first and read it, but several years ago the National Committee did a project on Chinese foreign aid. It was at a point where we thought that China was finally beginning to be willing to talk about its foreign aid issues openly. As Deborah has said, they're very secretive about things. The amount of aid that China gives is a state secret. Nobody can get to that. Although I read Deborah's book, she does give some examples of who is giving some information. So I brought um, three or four copies, which I'm happy to hand out to people. But it's also online. Um, if you just go to our website, www.ncuspr.org. You can find this along with other publications that we have. Uh, and then finally, I just want you all to join me in thanking Deborah for a really interesting <laughs>